are live. Yes, we are. It's Wednesday. Wednesday, start sharing. Start sharing the news. Like Daryl said, he's coming up. He's going to be sharing the news with everybody. First, I want to thank everyone for each and every week. We're on the 66th week since we began when COVID started. And we're going strong and building such a wonderful documentary series, podcast, True House Stories. It's I, I just can't thank you all enough for tuning in each and every Wednesday religiously. And you also, if you can't, because some people do have jobs and we do happen to work too, you don't catch the show live. You can always catch it on YouTube under True House Stories, Lenny Fontana and all that great stuff. But anyway, I like to start with welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. Disco ruled the world. There was a time when they said Rome ruled the earth. So did New York City. And you know I say this each and every week, and I really do have to say it passionately. When it came to breaking records, and a time when it was all new, New York City did rule the roost. Okay? Can't put it any other way. It was magical. Also, a crazy place full of alcohol, drugs, prostitution, and all that goes with the nightlife of what makes a city tick. Plus, you had Wall Street and all the wonderful things and people that banks and bankers that went out and wanted to be part of an industry that maybe they didn't understand, but they loved the glamour of it, but didn't realize all the dirtiness behind the scenes. But today... I'm going to get right into this. And this man's career starts around 75, 1976, and he's still going strong. And he looks good. He's got his fighting gloves on. You know, he's, a, he's what I call a heavyweight contender to the game. Okay. And he, you know, he's like, he was telling me his children don't even realize this part of his life. But he's coming here today after I've asked him a few times and he agreed to do it. I was so glad to get him. I like to welcome to True House Stories one one of the innovators of this game that starts out from R&B to disco and and beyond. And he'll tell you what he's doing today as well with all the wonderful video work and everything he does. He's still very active in the game. I like to introduce to all of you, Mr. Daryl Payne. Yes, yes. I appreciate that. Lenny, thanks for having me. You know, I appreciate it. And I think what you're doing is great. It's all about you know, preserving the legacy of so many wonderful people in this business, you know, like, like myself. And you've done it, you know, hands down to you, man. And uh, much love and respect, man. So. Thank you, brother. We love you, man. We, first of all, we love you because you made some of the best records we know. You got to beat the street on the journey. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but I just don't even want to waste my time talking no more. So here we go. People, Lenny's going to be quiet now. We're going to get, we're going to get some good history knowledge. And I say knowledge because he was in a lot of different pots. This is what's crazy about, he's going to explain how this whole thing developed. And it was at a point where it was really the beginnings of this. So first question out of the blocks, and then that's the last question, and you take it away, brother. 
how does music start for you from you know the early age and take us all the way through? Yes, yes. I started in 1976 when I was 16 years old. And I was always passionate about music. And I actually started doing promotion. I put the entertainment in 21 clubs every week. And the uh, club owners would pay me $500 a week to bring artists that would perform. When the artists would perform, it would help increase sales because back then the clubs influenced sales. You got sales from selling your music and your records. We had 12-inch records back then based on what was playing in the club. So even without airplay, everything started in the clubs. That's what I loved about the business back then. The clubs were influential on what got played on the radio. Now, now it's, it's about how many Spotify users you have, how many Instagram followers, TikTok. That influences it. But back then, it was about the music. Okay, So because I was putting so many artists in the clubs, I knew the record label executives. And I got friendly with a lot of them. And, uh, and I played the drums. I was a drummer. Born and raised in Queensbridge, New York, right underneath the 59th Street Bridge. That was where my humble beginnings start. And uh, I would come in with a reel-to-reel tape, and I would meet the guy at Atlantic Records or meet uh, Ray Caviano at RFC or, or all the guys at Warner Brothers. And they would let my music play for like 15 seconds, and they would eject it. And they'd say, ah, no, it's no good, no good, no good. And I would say, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And they would tell me what's wrong with it. I'd come back four months, five months later. And I and I and I tell the secretary, please, you gotta let them let them hear this new song I did. You know, if they don't like this song, I'll jump out the window. I'd make them laugh. Because I always had a way of getting in the doors. I was always a charming guy, you know, always charming. I would come a second time. This time they would let the song play to the chorus, they ejected. A year later, uh, I would come back and, um, you know, and, 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 and I think what gave me the strength, Lenny, is a lot of people don't believe. A lot of people feel that you're never going to make it. You're a black kid trying to make it. They're running around. And, and it was tough because in my day when I came up, you had to have real strings, real horns, real arrangements. You know, I'm not acting like I'm all that. But you take a lot of the music that I've done, and I'll go back to what I'm saying. Songs like, you know, uh, uh, Beat the Street had real strings and real horns. Never Gonna you know, never Give You Up by Sharon Red. And Carol Williams and Carol Douglas sang background on that. They were like assassins when it came to background vocals. Now, can I just say one quick little thing yes. to us as house producers? We use those records like architectural engineered records yes. to listen to as go-to. So keep going. So you understand what you were doing for us? We yes. were, the benchmark was so tremendous what so but the question i have real quick is mm -hmm. you bring these real to real tapes what style of music are you bringing to caviano warner brothers atlantic right, right. we're bringing dance music you know dance music it was dance music See, there was different styles in la they had one type of dance style dance music style in new york was different you know i i've always respected my favorite dance music producers and I, i'll give them their props to me, with guys like Dan Hartman, he was number one in my book, the most powerful dance music producer, just kept taking you higher. I used him as a bar. He was the best. And 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 it's unfortunate he's not here, but he was the best for my money, pound for pound. And the other gentleman that I looked up to, and I'll go back to what I was saying, were guys like Patrick Adams, you know, Leroy Burgess, Ubi Deves, uh, Kashif. I thought Kashif was the most polished producer. He had a way of being very sophisticated 
the backgrounds were precise. The, the bass sounds were just incredible. And he just had to say, but what I did differently than all those guys, with all due respect to them, mine was more raw. It was raw. I mean, it was dance music that was, you know, I'm a drummer, so I always believe that when you make this kind of music, give people angles. Never let something be repetitions. My shakers, we hear shake on my records. You hear syncopation all over the place. Bass drums, snare drums, uh, you know, side sticks. Everything's going to move in a rhythmic way that's different. Kashif would never make a record like No News Is News. He was too polished. But I did a No News Is News by Crimsicle. You know, the wine, me, and dummy. It's an anthem. Songs like I Need You Now. That's been sampled over 500 times. It's an absolute anthem. Probably the most sampled dance record in the history of dance music. And, and the guys that played on that record are guys that I grew up with in Queensbridge. You know, you had Michael Trax, you had Charlie Streak, you had Bernard Fowler singing lead, you had Stephen Cumberbatch on guitar. These were the guys that I, I grew up with as kids. You know, DJ Molly Marl, you know, used to look up to me, you know, and, and watch, you know, what I was doing, you know, back in those days. Uh, it, was, it was an incredible time. But getting back to getting in the door, I went, went to see, you know, and I'm not this is no saying anything bad about him, but I went to see Eddie O'Loughlin. He had a label called uh, uh, Midsong Records back then. And, uh, and uh, Carol Douglas, who was doing a lot of backgrounds for me, along with Carol Williams, goes to Eddie O'Loughlin and says, Eddie, listen, there's this young, hot producer. I want him to produce my next song. He's got it. This kid is so talented. So Eddie O'Loughlin says, okay. He called me up. Eddie says, hey, Daryl, listen, Carol Douglas thinks you're really talented. Come on in. Let's see what you're doing. Let's see. Let's hear what you got. I played him a song called Feel All Right, by, which ended up being by Kamiko. It was on Sam Records called Feel All Right. Okay. And what happened was I got jilted. I produced the record. Never had a contract on the record at all. You see Gary Turner's name, but he did nothing. He sat there like a bump on a lot. Did nothing. I mean, that's just what it is. I went and got the singer. I named the group Kamiko. And I played the song for Eddie O'Loughlin. It's the same, a reel-to-reel. We used to put the music back then on reel-to-reel tapes. So it really sounded good for the record executive. Then there with a cassette, cassette quality, it just wasn't good. So we would go and make a nice, good reel-to-reel copy. Eddie O'Loughlin says to me, he said, Daryl, I'll pay you $1,500 as an advance to you to produce Carol Douglas on this song. I'll give you three points. I said, Mr. O'Loughlin, I think my song is worth more than $1,500. He goes, nah. You'll never be worth more than $1,500 as an advance from anybody and not more than three points. You're not worth it. He told me that. I swear to you, I had 50 cents to get back home in the subway. He would have wrote the check for $1,500 right then on the spot. I humbly take my tape and I leave. I had some, some consecutive number one hit records within that year. To his credit, he calls me up. He says, is this Daryl Payne? I says, yes. He said, this is Mr. Eddie O'Loughlin. He said, I owe you an apology. He says, I said that you would not be worth more than $1,500 and worth more than three points to produce anything. I have to tell you, you're more than worth it any time. You know, I also want to share a story about Prelude. I mean, you know, Hubert Eves, Patrick Adams, who, who had uh, a Prelude a little before I got there. Uh, you know, we had the pleasure of doing a, a song called On a Journey. You know, I sing the funk electric anthem. That's one of the first electro dance records at that temple ever made. It was ahead of its time. The song was so ahead of its time, but I sing the funk electric on a journey was fire. Okay. Eric Matthew is just so talented. I mean, that guy had talent. He had real talent, but 
so that was the first deal that I made because I made all the deals. When Eric and I worked together, I made all the deals. So all those deals were done strictly 1,000% by Daryl Payne because he wasn't a sales guy. He wasn't the type of guy to go out and sell. So we could, wait, 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 wait. Incredible so far. Marvin Schlachter, did you have to deal with Stan Hoffman and, yeah. and, and the mafia? That's yeah, let, me go there. let me go there. Let me go there. Can but go before there? you go there, yes, sir. go back to Kamiko. Yes. And you said the studio. Because we need to know mm-hmm. did you work at a Bob Blank studio? Where were you working? Who at the garage? Who were you doing? Yes. We we did feel all right in the in, at unique recording studios. That's where that was recorded at. And um it was a great studio at the time. It was a place that was affordable. It was only $50 an hour to go there. And, and it worked. A lady named Joanne and her husband owned it. Uh, very nice people. And uh, they always gave me credit. So that always helped too. You know, they didn't charge me up front. But going back to the Kamiko, uh, the young lady there, her name was Kelly Curtis. I could have made this young lady a star. She sang lead on it. She was supposed to sign a contract. That's why I never put an artist in the studio unless I have a contract signed. But back then, I'm 21 years old, 22 years old. You want to trust everybody. You want to believe everybody. She says, Daryl, I'll sign the contract. I record the song. I bring it in the studio. A guy named Lenny White was signed to Electro Asylum and promised her he was going to make her a star. He told her, don't sign with Daryl Payne. I'm going to make you a star. Because he's on Electro Asylum. I told her she's making a tremendous mistake. So, so what does she do? She doesn't sign my contract. I do a buyout. I pay her $1,000, buy her out. And then, I, and then Carol Williams and Carol Douglas, who sang background on Feel Right, that's Carol Williams and Carol Douglas singing the chorus to Feel Right. They went out and worked as Kamiko in between working as Carol Williams as a solo artist or Carol Douglas as a solo artist. And they went out and did the shows. The interesting part is when it came to, I'll tell you this story. Uh, uh, Marvin Schlachter said to me, hey, Daryl, listen, we have an artist. We want, to, we want you to work with Sharon Red. I said, great. So uh, I, I play him uh, uh, Never Give You Up. He loves the record. He loves it. I play him the song Beat the Street. He doesn't like it. He said it's no good. He said it's a piece of, tr- it's a piece of trash. I play him a song called Thanks to You. I had another young lady named Gila Jones singing the demo at the time. This, this is amazing. This is a mafia story. It's gonna, this, this goes there. Uh, Marvin hands me a check to, to, to start working on the, the, uh, on, the, on the Sharon Red. He says, but bring me songs, bring me songs. And I come to him again. I says, Marvin, this song, Thanks to You, is a number one hit record. Sharon should do it. He goes, no, Daryl, I don't hear it. I don't like it. I don't hear it. I get home. The next day, I call him. I says, Marvin, I don't think this song is for Sharon Red. He throws up his hands. He says, well, if it's not for Sharon, it's not for Sharon. Like, what the hell do you want me to do about it? So what I do, I go walk around the corner to come to Morris Levy's label. Morris Levy had a label called Beckett Records Buddha. And I sit down with Morris, and they, they love it. They're not letting me out of the office. They say, hey, kid, this is it. We're not going to let you. Say, here's the money. Here's the this. Here's the that. They'd have given me that next born for that song. You know, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that. So now I signed a deal with, with Beckett. They paid like $25,000 for one song, which was a lot of money. You know, I mean, and back in those days, I would do two or three songs a week. 
and I'd make 40 to 60 grand a week. So imagine a 20-year-old kid, 21, 22 years old, seeing that kind of money every single week. Right? So Francois starts playing to rub it in uh, Stan Hoffman's and Marvin Schleicher's face. He's playing thanks to in the office. And I'm on the phone with one of the promotion guys. I swear this is the God's honest truth. And I hear Marvin yell, take that goddamn record off. Don't play that record in this office no more. Don't you play that record. He's yelling and screaming off the top of his lungs, yelling and screaming. It gets better. That night, I go out and I'm partying at a club. I run into Chuck Leonard, who was a DJ at 98.7, whatever the hell it was. Well, you know, Chuck Leonard. 98.7 Kiss, FM yeah. New York, everywhere. Right, right. right. WKD, right. I say to Chuck Leonard, he was emceeing a show that one of my artists were performing at that night. I says, Chuck, I said, these guys are prelude. They don't pay royalties. They just screw, they just screw us out all our money. Chuck Leonard went and told Marvin Schlachter that Daryl Payne said they don't pay royalties. Marvin Schlachter called Stan Hoffman, who's connected, and they tricked me into the office and said, Daryl, listen, we want you to see us. We want you to produce other artists. I had four tiny guys have me against the wall. You better not say nothing about us. We pay royalties. I'm like this, right? I'm like a little kid. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The mafia, they're going to freaking kill me, for Christ's sake, right? And I literally run out of there. They said, you better get that record back. I said, what record? That thanks to your record. We want it for Sean Red. I said, you, I'm scared to death. I'm 20. I'm scared. I said, Marvin, I said, you know, you didn't like it. I played it for you twice. I came in. You said, if it, I said, I'm, I said, Marvin, I don't think this record's for Sharon. You said, well, if it's not for Sharon, it's not for Sharon. Like, do what you want to do with it. He says, get it back. I said, I sold it to Marvin Levy. He says, get it back from him. So he told me, literally he told me out of the office. Really. I'm, I'm not kidding. I am not exaggerating. I walked four or five blocks from Marvin to Morris Levy. I said, Morris, I got a problem. He said, what's that kid? I said, I went and took your money. But thanks to you, you know, he gave me like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars for the one song. I said, but Marvin Schlachter is saying that the, rock, the song belongs to him. He said, Did you sign a contract for that song? I says, no. But he threatened to kill me that if I don't bring him that song today, they're gonna kill me. Morris Levy, I said right there. Morris Levy called him. He says, Marvin, you're getting a visit. He says, you're gonna leave that kid alone. It's not your record. Leave that effing kid alone. That's it. And Marvin Levy called the guys on Prelude. But when that happened, what Marvin did was he always tried to screw around with me on the credits. So if you look at a lot of the credits, it's all wishy-washy. They don't want to give me the credit. But Daryl Payne made that album. Bottom line, I was there. And then look, guess what? The second album, the Love How You Feel album, Daryl Payne wasn't there. It flopped. With all due respect, it didn't chart. Nobody played it. Nobody talked about it. It was no hits. The reviewers and Billboard says, oh, my God, I love Sharon Red, but where's Daryl Payne? Where is he? The magic was gone. There was no magic. I wasn't there. You know? Look at, let's take a kiss. Uh, Hang on, brother. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Explain this. This is the part I'm hearing. I, I get that. I know. Wait. <laughs> yes. How does Sharon Red become a superstar? What did you do to make her? To be, because she, they had her, right? They had her at the label. So where do you, you come in as this kid? You're selling your records, but how do you make this magic happen? What What happened was, you know, my sound 
And once again, I'm not acting like I'm all that. It always has a pop feel to it. I'm giving you the raw elements of dance music, but I have pop melody lines, catchy choruses. I always believe in throwing a lot of choruses at you at once. So it always starts going. Always take it higher and higher. Give people more. Give them the breakdowns. Give them the excitement. So songs like Never Give You Up, it went top five all around the world because it was pop. That was the biggest song she ever had in her life, was Never gonna give, never give You Up. The biggest one. The second biggest one was Beat the Street. You know, and let me tell you how that came about. I was at the Studio 54 partying, and I heard a song called uh, uh, Don't You Want Me, Don't You Want Me, Baby, right? I heard that. And I heard the bass drum. And I watched all these people going, but I said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. If I can take the, the elements of how they did that and put a more syncopation to it, so it was more soulful, it's more black, right? And I took the, how that bass drum was moving like this. And I gave it that syncopation. That's how I came up with the beat to beat the street. And that's, and then I gave it the elements of Isaac Hayes, of that old shaft with the strings and the horns and the bridge. So it's like, it's like soul, black exploitation movies, the way you heard music back then. So I was giving you productions. Here's the reality, whether people want to admit it or not. When you take away the string arrangements of my songs, you take away the horns, you got house music. Byron Stingley, the lead, the lead singer of 10 City, called me, he said, Daryl, he said, listen, when we don't do all that 10 City stuff, we were trying to be like you. He says, we can't, we got it from you. See, I Mike keep the, saying it over listen, and over. Mike, listen, Mike, watch this, Lenny. Mike the Hitman Wilson, respectful producer out of Chicago, house producer. He came to my office, he said, bro, I, he said, let me, he says, he bowed down. He said, yo, bro, he was like this. He was like this. We, when we were making house records, we had a crate of Daryl Payne records in the studio. And this is what we were trying to be you, but we have no money for horns. We don't know how to write string arrangements. We don't do none of that. All we had to do was do the basics. So, so that's, that's the element of, of, of house music. That's what it is. You think of songs like No News Is News. What do you think that is? It's a house record before they called it house music. On a journey, it's house music. I need you now. It's all right. Let me do you. Those songs were on Warner Brothers, Sire Warner Brothers. Those were house records without the title. 1,000%. That's what they were. You know? And But we didn't call it that. We just called it dance music. It dance music, right. That's right. right. Dance, right. period. And, and here's the other thing. I'm the gentleman, believe it or not, that started Jive in Black music. I bought Keith Diamond, who owed me money, and it, may he rest in peace. But I invested money. We were supposed to go half and half. We were recording a couple of projects at Unique. He couldn't pay us half the money. He was a struggling artist at the time. Beautiful brother. I loved him. May, may his soul rest in peace. But I took him with me to Jive because I was a hot producer at the time. And Clive Davis wanted me to produce artists that were famous in England for a label that they were getting behind called Jive. So I did an artist named Richard John Smith for them. I did Katie Kasum. So Katie Kasum record should have been a big hit. I thought that it was one of my most polished productions I've ever done in my life. And the guy who wrote that song was Barry Eastman. I gave him his first start in the record business. Barry Eastman was my keyboard player. The guy would stand over my shoulders in awe and say, Daryl, how can you show me how to make records? How did you do this? I mean, how 
do you do this? And I would sit there and show him how I would do it. And he was my keyboard player. Another guy, Skip Anderson, who went and produced all the Luther Vandross stuff. He was there with me also. He played the, the keyboards on Can't Get Away From Your Love by Carol Williams that came on Vanguard. Wayne Brathwaite, may his soul rest in everlasting peace. His first record he ever had on in his life, before he did Freddie Jackson, he wrote Can't Get Away From Your Love by Carol Williams. That was his first record that ever charted. So I gave so many people, you know, Chef Pettibone, who's one of the greatest remixers of all time. I bowed to this brother's talent. I gave him his first break in 1980. I, I took him with me. I said, listen, you're going to remix uh, No One Can Do It by Carol Williams. It came out in 1980, 1981, whatever that was. He never seen a studio before. And he mixed it and he did his own thing. And that was his start. And I gave him his first hit record. He mixed, you know, Thanks to You by Cinnamon. And, and I was the first person to have the syncopated hand claps. That's right, because at the garage, Listen, not, not, no, not bragging. I created that sound. Bottom line, whenever you hear that, Gerald Payne created it. That's a fact. Because the first record to ever have that with that rhythm is thanks to you. You never heard that on no record ever. ever okay. But never. Clarify where the sound actually comes from. Because we know it now, they used to do with uh, now Rogers, they would use that two by fours and go, ka, ka. And they would record that, of course, with the claps of everybody doing it. How did you get that sound at that yes. time? We used a Lynn drum machine to get those claps and we would sequence it. Uh, that's what we would do. We would use it. And I just, I'm a drummer. So I have these rhythms. So I, so that rhythm, that's my trademark. When you hear that, people knew it was a Daryl Payne record. You know, the another thing I would do, I had these Chinese rhythms. You would hear it in Feel All Right. You hear the ticky, 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 You hear that in Thanks to You. You hear that in uh, Kamiko, Feel All Right. You hear these rhythms, these Chinese Oriental type rhythms. I love to put that into the songs. And when it comes to the drums, the bass drum, the bass, is going to be killing. It's going to be fierce. You know, and, and, and my thing is this. You know, I remember going to the Paradise Garage and people would scream. When a Daryl Payne record played, people would literally try to climb the walls. I mean, they would scream. It just wouldn't just play. They would go absolutely bonkers, just absolutely insane. And, and I knew that I had something special and, and I was so appreciative of the dance music committee. Let me tell you another story you didn't know and nobody knows the story. And I, don't even tell this story. In 1983, I'm 23 years old now. I'm getting older now. Uh, I went on a date with a female singer named Michael Brown. And I was producing uh, uh, stuff for Jive Records at the time. And I went on a date with, I took out Amy Stewart, made that song Knock on Wood. Remember the dance record Knock on Wood? And uh, Michael Brown was a female. Was, was that the, the Symphony of Love? Did she do yes, it? Yes, that was her. Holly Dorr, right? Yes. Holly yes. Dorr, right. Yeah, yes. I remember which in America was E3MI, capital, whatever. But watch this. So we're in the limo. We go into this club. She said, Daryl, let's go to this club called the Hippodrome. So it's a gay club, but it doesn't matter. I'm with two girls. We're all having fun. It's all nothing but a party, right? We're partying. And a guy heard, somebody from the security told the DJ in the mezzanine who was spinning records that Daryl Payne was there. He calls me. He's playing In the Name of Love. That was the number one gay anthem. I produced that. My, but Marvin Schlachter screwed up with the credits. But I produced it. I was there. It's my, I did it. In the Name of Love by Sharon Red, A gay anthem. Absolute gay anthem. 
He's playing it. People are going crazy. He calls me up to the DJ booth. says, I want to say Daryl Payne is here, a legend from New York. Oh, my God, I love him. The DJ's name was Ian Levine. When I introduced so Ian, who had never had a hit record at that time in his life, Michael Brown was my date. He says, Daryl, I want you to do this four-track demo. And I'm listening to it in, my, in, his, in the headphones he's got while people are screaming at the Hippodrome, screaming downstairs, partying. Blah, blah, blah. The song is called So, so Many Men, So Little Time. I asked Michael Brown, I says, he said, could you think you can get Michael Brown to sing it? I says, I'll try. Her career was kind of faltering. It was basically over. I said, listen, I says, Michael, you got to do the song. You got, you know, and we wasn't serious. Man, we dated a couple of times. I said, you got to do this song. I begged this woman for two weeks. You got to do this song. I said, do it for me. Do this song. Do this song. She didn't even like it. I negotiated the contract for, I think the label was called Record Shack. I, I did all the paperwork. The song comes out. It was a number one hit record. Once again, had it not been for me, because she was with me, Michael Brown would never sing on that. I used to sit at the table with her daughter named Sunita. She was a kid. Sunita, you know who Sunita, Sunita is? She ended up going with Simon Cowell, that whole thing with, you know, those big reality shows. A lot of that stuff was her idea. But I remember sitting there with Sunita when she was a kid, having dinner at the table with her mom and Sunita. And she became a big superstar all over Europe. You know, so the stories are just absolutely amazing. I mean, they're just amazing. And, 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 and you know, I, I've always looked up to, you know, like I said, guys that came before me, like I said, give them their props. You know, Hubert Eves, Kashif, you know, Leroy, you know, Patrick, Adam, Leroy Burgess. Those guys were just so talented. You know, uh, and another guy who passed away, his name was uh, Gregory Carmichael. A lot of people don't know him. He's an albino brother. He's been, he's left us many years ago. You know, he was like a strange kind of guy. He was kind of like just strange. But the guy had a, a way of getting things done. Hang on. This is what I'm going to ask you now. The great Carmichael thing, because everybody was in that same building in Manhattan. Everybody's sunshine sound, great Carmichael, because even John Morales brings this up too about. It. So go ahead. Tell us about the albino yeah. brother. Yes, yes, yes. He was a, 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 a very, I could never figure him out. I would see him at record labels and he was albino. So when you looked at him, you never thought he was looking at you. You know what I mean? He was just strange. He was a strange, to me, I was a kid. He was, he was very strange to me. Let me tell you this story also. I, I went to, uh, when Thanks to You was out and, and this song was selling, when it first came out, it was selling 52,000 copies a day for three weeks straight. If the record was fire. I mean, 52,000 records. Not ship was selling every single day. And this is with no music video. People have to understand when we made dance music back then, no one, no one did music videos because MTV, VH1 wouldn't play black artists unless she was Prince of Michael Jackson. So a lot of these records that might have sold 400,000, 300,000, 500,000 copies, had we had music videos to this stuff, it would have been 10 times, 20 times bigger but we didn't have that opportunity. Had I had the opportunity to produce a Janet Jackson, could you imagine if Janet Jackson sang Beat the Street and Thanks to You and all that? Forget it. And they, and they would have put the promotion dollars behind it. Our music played because it was good. It was exceptional. The people wanted it. Not because there was some rich label pushing it down your throat, spending all this amount of money to promote and break these artists. You know, that's, that's, that's you know, but I tell you what, 
you know, pound for pound, I'll take my top 10 records that I've made in my career during that time. I'll put them against anybody pound for pound. Now, the other guys might have had bigger records, and yeah, because they had music videos, and it was Janet, but on the strength of just being dance music that people dance to, I put mine against anybody. I don't care who they are. During that period, I don't care who you are. I think I'll get you. Without a doubt. Now, here's the thing I need to ask. Mm -hmm. You're a drummer, so you're doing all drum programming and stuff. Mm -hmm. You got Earl Young, who creates the 4-4 that he doesn't create it, but he embellishes it and Gamble and Huff and all the Philly sound make that thing happen. Yeah. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.